0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Far These Times. My name is Ayman Makarim, and I'm the editor of the remastered episode you're about to listen to. It was initially released on May 20th, 2021, entitled Palestine and Global Solidarity, with Sumeya Awad and Shirin Akram Bojar. I want to take a minute to contextualize the episode you're about to hear, but also to briefly mention why we at The Far These Times decided to re-release this episode now in today's context. During May 2021, the ethnic cleansing campaign against Palestinians had reached a new tipping point, most notably with the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem, the consequent uprisings across the West Bank and Israel or 48 Palestine, and the military confrontation between Hamas and Israel. This political moment is described in the episode as a unity and tifado, a re-coalescing of Palestinian national identity which has for decades been intentionally separated by the Israeli state. The Israeli bombardment of Gaza that followed resulted in what the guests described as the worst bombing campaign ever. The two guests also talk at length about the movements growing across the world, with particular emphasis on the US, in solidarity with Palestine and the Palestinian struggle for liberation. The recording ends with news that a ceasefire had just been reached between Hamas and Israel. So upon hearing this, it may be easy to understand why we decided to re-release this episode. Everything sounds so familiar, if you're following what's happening in Palestine-Israel today. Except it's all incredibly accelerated. The devastation is much greater, the Israeli war machine is in full steam, and the horrors of genocide are on full display. We wanted to re-release this episode to show that all of this did not start on October 7th. That these conversations, discussions, and movements have been ongoing for decades. That said it is undeniable that we have entered a new phase. So, while we navigate this new terrain, it's still vital to understand the context, root causes, and historical factors that have led us to this horrific, horrific point. So, with that said, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you.
1: My name is Maya Awad, and I am a Palestinian. I grew up, I was actually born and raised in Jordan. My grandfather is from Jerusalem, and in 1948, he, his family was forced out, and they went to Beirut because he had an uncle there. And they left thinking they would return, as as many, if not most, Palestinians did, but he never was able to return. Um, he passed away in 2019. Although his his home, his family home, is still in Jerusalem. It's in the old city. So I, you know, grew up with Palestine being very central to uh, who I am, my upbringing, and my grandfather was very, very political. And, yeah, that's that's the short of it. Right now, I'm I'm based in New York City. I'm the co-editor of a book that was released in December 2020, Palestine, a Socialist Introduction. You should get a copy if you don't have one. And I'm the director of strategy at the Adada Justice Project, which is a U.S.-based advocacy and organizing um, organization.
2: Uh, my name is Shireen Akram-Boshar. I'm a Boston-based activist and socialist uh, and a longtime Palestine solidarity activist. Well, I'm not Palestinian. I I also grew up in a I grew up in a very pro-Palestine and and anti-imperialist household. My parents were very active on Palestine, although they're uh, Lebanese, American and, and Pakistani. So I actually spent time in Palestine as a child and in East Jerusalem for a summer when I was about five and then for a year when I was in first grade. And I think, you know, living there as a child completely shaped my politics, you know, going forward since Like I remember at five years old seeing people get shot in Al-Khalil and Hebron and checkpoints. And then I had to go through a checkpoint every day to go to school in first grade, which was (laughs) very stressful for me as a child. And, you know, I remember my dad, who's uh, Lebanese-American, when he tried to visit us uh, one time, he was interrogated for seven hours when he was trying to get through Israel, basically. And at the same time, I was like completely embraced by the Palestinian community around us uh, and that we lived with at the time.
3: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your relationship to Palestine you sort of already did. You know, this is going to be a difficult question off the start already, but given that we're recording this specifically on May 20th, uh, well, 2021, obviously, and things are still very much still developing on the ground, what are some of your thoughts on what's been happening, especially recently?
1: So I think what triggered the what we've seen unfold in the last few weeks and what is still unfolding uh, was the protests in Sheikh Jarrah Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, this very small neighborhood in Jerusalem, in occupied Jerusalem, protesting uh, ethnic cleansing campaign that uh, Israel, Israel's armed forces and settler organizations, many of them who uh, are actually, have headquarters here in the United States, um, some in New York, where I am right now, um, trying to force the Palestinian families out and to give their homes to these, these settlers. Um, and there's been so many videos circulating of, you know the violence and the the uh, dehumanization that that these settlers represent, um, and and how many of them have American accents, right? Like they're very new to this land, um, and yet they're taking over the homes of Palestinians that have been there for centuries. And so in Sheikh Jarrah, the protest against this the Judaization of Jerusalem ended up triggering much larger protests in uh, in Jerusalem at Al Aqsa, and this was all happening in the last ten days of Ramadan, which is already a uh, a very uh, important and in, in years past also there have always been protests in those last ten days because Israeli forces prevent Palestinians from going to Al Aqsa to pray um, and to to worship. And so the Sheikh Jarrah protests uh, made international news. One I think important to point out because of the brutality of the the Israeli police against these unarmed just Palestinians in their neighborhood at their homes, you know. We saw photos and videos of settlers forcing themselves into these homes, throwing grenades, having these like AR-51s strapped onto their backs, just walking around these streets, um, harassing and assaulting Palestinians. And I think there's definitely, and maybe we can talk about this later, but there's definitely a connection between seeing that and the police brutality in Sheikh Jarrah and connecting it to the police brutality and the protests we saw here um, Mm -hmm. just last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that spread into the Jerusalem, the Al-Aqsa protests, um, and Israel forced itself into, Israeli forces forced themselves into, into Al-Aqsa mosque, uh, while people were praying at night, open fire on them, uh, live ammunition was used, grenades. And I think all of this sparked a much larger, uh, awakening, uh, mm-hmm. in, in Palestine and importantly, not just in Jerusalem and not just in the West Bank, but also Palestinians, um, living in uh, uh, 48, who rose up as well and protested in solidarity and against what they've been facing, both police brutality, the occupation of their land, and of course the connection to uh, Gaza. And that's when Hamas intervened, and it was sort of this resistance that was from the river to the sea, as we've always chanted for decades. But it actually it was it was happening right before our eyes. We Palestinians from Gaza. From 48, from the West Bank, from Jerusalem, were all rising together um, against the the colonization of their lands and with one common with one common goal and and this occupation and this settler colonial project. And then I think another really important thing to point out is how that spilled over to the diaspora, right? To Jordan, to Lebanon, to Syria, and then beyond that. So you had Jordanians first protesting at the Israeli embassy which isn't new. This happens almost every Ramadan when Israeli forces attack al-Aqsa. But what was different is, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of Jordanians that went to the border with Palestine, Um, the the infamous uh, Allenby Bridge border, and uh, protested there. And, you know, we're chanting, open the borders, open the borders to these rows of armed Jordanian uh, military officers. And some of them actually managed to push their way through, although very quickly we're, we're forced back. And in Lebanon as well. Although there, one of the protesters was was shot and killed. And I think that showing this, there's these protests of return. I mean, all of these are Palestinians, right? That Jordan's population is majority Palestinians. Palestinians that were forced out in 1948 or earlier or after, wanting to return home and to defend their land. And many have pointed out on, on Twitter and elsewhere that the last time there was, there was this show of unification was in 1947, where you had Palestinians across the board together as a unified whole fighting to get their land back.
2: Yeah, I mean, thanks, Samaya. You really laid everything out there. I, I guess I'll just comment a little bit on a few things that have been taking place. I mean, I think it's, it's really such a different moment right now because... You know, on the one hand, you're seeing the massive, completely unleashed violence of the colonizer, you know, where the Israeli police and the government and military and armed settlers and so on are all uh, working together to escalate, you know, the ethnic cleansing project. And uh, they're carrying out lynchings of Palestinians in cities like Haifa and Lid and, you know, carrying out the worst bombardment of Gaza that's ever been seen before. So on the one hand, it's a horrifying and absolutely terrifying moment. You know, not only did Israel bomb the press building in Gaza, that's was housing Al Jazeera and AP Press and others. Uh, they also bombed Gaza's largest bookstore. They bombed the homes of three of Gaza's most prominent doctors and the road to Gaza's main hospital. And obviously we can't forget that it, we're, it's during the... Uh, COVID pandemic, which has also, I mean, pre-existing medical apartheid. And then in East Jerusalem, as Samaya talked about, of course, weeks before this, the Israeli state, along with settlers, were ramping up their ethnic cleansing project to expel families from Sheikh Jarrah. And at the same time, uh, Jewish-Israeli mobs were searching for Palestinians in East Jerusalem to to attack or, or lynch them. And that's escalated to the point where in cities across Israel... Palestinian stores have been attacked or even Palestinian homes broken in on, to the point where Palestinians in these areas are, are trying to create, you know, self-defense committees. But on the other hand, we're seeing, again, as Samaya talked about, unprecedented resistance by Palestinians across the West Bank and East Jerusalem and inside Israel or, or what's, not, what's called 48 in a way that's uh, much more united and is breaking breaking through Israel's fragmentation uh, of the Palestinian people. So inside Israel, or 48, the best example might be uh, Lid, the city of Lid, which still has a large Palestinian population. Uh, and the uprising there reached the level of insurrection where the military came in to crush, you know, what they saw as a Palestinian uprising and takeover of the city. and you know, across the West Bank, when Israel started incessantly bombing Gaza, people were protesting at 3 a.m. in cities across the West Bank as Israel bombed Gaza, which was very uh, moving to watch. And then there was uh, the call for the general strike this past Tuesday, um, which seems like it was extremely successful. And Palestinian laborers in Israel, whether they're migrant workers from the West Bank or citizens of Israel, they in very large part, didn't show up to work, especially, and that especially affected, you know, um, certain sectors like construction, which is 50% uh, Palestinian workers, etc. So as Samaya said, overall, you know, this is a level of unity across fragmented Palestine that we haven't seen in decades. Some people are saying not since the 1936-39 to 39 Arab Revolt, Great Arab Revolt, it was called, uh, but certainly not since, like, the first and second intifadas of the late, 80s and 90s. But I also think I've been I've been studying the first intifada a bit and you know the demand has actually changed now from from what from my vantage point at least. Um so even though the, the first intifada was a momentous uprising and and that with the 36 to 39 revolt perhaps the peak of Palestinian struggle at the same time the first intifada you know it was its main drawback, I'd say, was the mini-state concession. So the, the PLO really had conceded from its start that there would be a two-state solution. So and and back then the demand was really an end to the occupation, and now it's I don't see that as the main demand. It's it's instead it's a demand to end the entire ethnic cleansing project, end colonization, and for full liberation. And I think that's why the addition of uh, folks in forty-eight or Israel is so much more powerful because you can't just call for the end of the occupation. It's it's so much more than that. I also, can I comment on what somebody was saying about the border uh, protests? <laughs> yeah, I think it was particularly moving for me and for many, many others to see the mass protests in Jordan um, that broke through and, and crossed the border uh, into Palestine on Nakba Day, which was uh, the 15th, almost a week ago. Um, and and tens of protesters did the same in Lebanon. As Samaya said, this like symbolizes the desire to, to return, the, the right of return for Palestinian refugees across the region and globally. But it also symbolizes that, you know, an uprising is happening and that people are moved by the prospects of decolonization and, and liberation. And I think it's important to note that the last time this happened was 10 years ago, on uh, also on Nakba Day. And it was during the start of the Arab Spring or uh, Middle East, North Africa revolutions, as they're called which was a moment of regional uprising where there was, you know, the potential for regional decolonization and and liberation. So just from that, the fact that this hasn't happened in 10 years, those border uh, crossing protests, just from that, you know, we're witnessing something historic and that it is, in fact, an uprising. And I think it's also a reminder of how closely tied Palestine is to the region as a whole, how and how the impulse for Palestinian liberation is tied to broader struggles and and the broader desire for freedom from tyranny and oppression and imperialism, you know, and w- we could also talk more about that. I mean, I think it's important to note that while there were protests in countries ac- like across the region in the world, uh, there actually weren't protests in Egypt, in, in Cairo, for uh-huh. example, uh-huh. or inside Syria's regime-controlled territory. And and that's not because the people there don't have an affinity towards Palestine, but it's because protests in solidarity with Palestine represents such a threat to those counter-revolutionary regimes.
3: Yeah, or even in, even in Bahrain also, that would be another place where you would have protests otherwise. I would say like yesterday, I think there was the in protesters in Haifa, I think were chanting the Hela Hela Ho song that Lebanese people chanted about a year and a half ago, which was really funny for me mm-hmm. to see. It really shows that there are are these, you know, cross-border or even anti-border, I would say, like, you know, exchanges Mm -hmm. that are happening at that level. Yeah, I took a few notes down, Uh, just very briefly, like, Sumaya, you mentioned the Judaization projects. And I wanted to also emphasize that it's not just a term that we are using. This is a term that, like, the actual NGOs that we're referencing, that's a term that they have themselves used, uh, which I think surprises a lot of people when we actually, you know, I can, I will literally just find the links of their own, like, uh, the description of their own websites that's the term that they themselves use, uh, which really shows how comfortable they've been in terms of thinking that uh, you know there there'll be total immunity at at this kind of of settler colonial project, especially the more the most brazen uh, version of it. Another thing, like both of you mentioned this, and so I think we can get into this a bit more, like just this like this more intersectional approach that I think the three of us obviously would 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 adopt, and many people are definitely adopting as well. Of like on the you know on the american side for example linking it linking up to like black lives matter to the decolonial projects or the decolonization efforts by a lot of indigenous folks and then Shirini also mentioned uh, how like in the middle east and north africa like the entire region how it's also linked to a lot of the struggles that have for the most part been crushed in the past decade and what that actually means so yeah can we can we get a bit more into this i don't know who wants to start on this
2: Yeah, as Sumaya was saying, I think it can't be ignored that last summer was a summer of Black Lives Matter uprising that, you know, took the U.S., took a hold of the U.S., but also took on global dimensions and changed the conversation globally about the connections between colonialism and racial oppression today. You know, there was the taking down of statues in the U.K., in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. And now we're seeing mass protests globally in in support of Palestine and a changed conversation in, in the U.S about Palestine. So there's a new way of looking at colonialism and oppression that's becoming more widespread and, and agreed upon, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just want to take us back to the strike for a second, because I actually think it's reported that millions participated in the strike, which, mm. is, which is historic, and that's an understatement. Millions across all of occupied Palestine. And more than that, that it was called by youth. It wasn't called by any particular faction or political party. It was actually called from the ground. And that's who led it um, across the board. And in fact, there's a very conscious understanding that this is not linked to any of the so-called Palestinian leaders and the parties that they represent. And even in Sheikh Sharah, I think, you know, in Sheikh Sharah, during it was like two weeks ago when, when things were starting to hit the international news, when a representative of the PA was going to come visit and the Sheikh Jarrah community released a statement saying we don't we don't want anyone that mm. works with and collaborates Israeli security to represent us to come here. And I think that is just so important because it also right away it makes it it ensures That any attempt at uh, negotiations, and I'm using scare quotes, will not be taken seriously. Because who are you going to negotiate with? It's either the Palestinian people on the ground or no one, is is the message that that sent. And also that all of this was unfolding in the lead up to the Nakba. I mean, Shireen, you mentioned Nakba. I think that's just so important. Mm -hmm. Because it's saying it's been 73 years of Israel trying to erase Palestinians. Like that is the project, erase Palestinians. It's not integrate them and assimilate them. It's erase them. Um, And yet Palestinians are persisting. Um, And in fact, are insisting that we're all Palestinians from the river to the sea and in the diaspora. And the strike manifesto that was that was put out the statement, it actually really emphasized that the Palestinians in the diaspora are just as Palestinian as Palestinians Mm -hmm. in occupied Palestine, which which I also think is really important. What was your question, Joey? I forgot.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you've been answering it anyway. I, w- I will mention, like, just to take us a bit forward, just it happened, you know, in 2014, of course, there were the Ferguson protests that were happening at the same time as the war in Gaza, and that definitely led a lot of Palestinians and, you know, African-American activists and just allies all around to to link these things up in a more concrete ways. And I remember this very, like, Mariam Baruti, a good friend of mine, like she was sharing tactics you know of what to do on the streets and other people who are doing the same thing i will mention like there's a book that i contributed to uh called our social justice and israel palestine and one of the chapters was specifically on the link between black lives matter and and the palestinian protests from a few years ago and this is definitely something like now we saw like black lives matter op- like releasing statements of course angela davis and a number of other people and just become this more of a conscious thing and as it happened you know of course the black lives matter last last uh last summer and just these links are being made more organically, which I definitely think is more interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that that was the question. And you already started answering it. So if you want to continue, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was I was thinking pretty much the same thing recently, uh, seeing people on Facebook uh, like Sean King, who has a massive following uh, posting about Palestine and how Israel is committing genocide, which I mean, I thought was a it's indicative of the change in conversation. But also, I remembered Sean King speaking at Boston University I would say around 2015, uh, hugely, a packed panel on Black Lives Matter in Palestine, like the shared, the connections between Black and Palestinian liberation. So yeah, I I was thinking uh, efforts like this made a huge difference in where we are today in the conversation in the US. You know, there were trips that brought Black activists to Palestine. And I know of Palestinian students and activists who were brought to Ferguson during its rebellion around 2014 and, and 2015. You've mentioned how serious solidarity activists have been thinking about these, you know, how the Palestine Solidarity Movement has made such momentum and and movement. And yeah, I I think other movements should look to this, you know, decades-long effort by Palestinians and, you know, other activists in the U.S. that have finally brought us to this point. Since I've done some serious solidarity work in depth as well, I've I've sometimes come across like a sort of impatience which, of course, is justified in the sense that, you know, when it comes to Syria, there's been a massive catastrophe and genocide largely ignored. But there's an impatience in terms of activism in the US, like, why aren't folks on board? But it takes, as we see from the Palestinian effort, it it takes years of making these connections. And there's really no alternative to that. You know, we're, we're pushing back on so many dominant narratives, whether it's like Islamophobia, racism, bad ideas about imperialism, isolation and lack of historical knowledge, and a lot of bad ideas on the le- left, even even when it comes to Palestine, there are a lot of bad ideas on the on the left uh, that we have to fight through. Yeah, and it sometimes feels like, you know, we have no time, there's ca- these catastrophes happening now, and, and we need to act, but at the same time, the you know, the struggle for liberation is, is going to take a long time and building those connections and building the movements. And, and that's what's going to eventually bring our liberation. Not There are no shortcuts, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you both mentioned the connection to Black Lives Matter and uh, Ferguson, which I think is very powerful. And the statement that Black Lives Matter, movement for Black lives released, I believe at the end of 2016, where it called Israel's project a genocide, I think was a big breaking point. And it was a whole platform that they released. And Palestine was one small part of it. And yet that small part made front page news across the board. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just released another statement in solidarity with Palestine and drawing on the connections that I think is is very important and powerful um, because of, you know, the the very direct relationship, right? The fact that police in this country are trained there, especially in in the big metropolises Mm -hmm. like York City and Los Angeles and Chicago. And they use the same type of weapons and military tactics, etc. But more than that, because when you when you saw the images coming out of Sheikh Jarrah, when you see the way the soldiers and the police were beating up Palestinians, young, old men, women, doesn't matter, in the street. I mean, you can't not think of Ferguson, you can't not think of Minneapolis, uh, Standing Rock, and the list goes on. So I think that that was really important. I think also the fact that COVID in the last year, coupled with the last decade of austerity in the U.S. and elsewhere, has made people really fed up with the government and really untrusting of what they say and the same lines that they keep repeating to sort of just quell people and and, um, squash dissent, et cetera. That makes people think more like, okay, you know, I see this happening. The justifications that are constantly given to me no longer really hold water. Right. The the idea that Palestinians are the aggressors and instigators, the idea that the whole terrorism charge, I mean, even with Hamas right now, you know, when when people are like, OK, well, what about Hamas? What about Hamas? I actually think that's losing water, too. I don't mm-hmm. think it's if three years ago right now what is happening, you wouldn't have as much of an outcry. Um, when Hamas started shooting rockets, I mean, what was what was just introduced to Congress yesterday in the House, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Mark Pocan, the resolution they introduced to stop this arms sale, this latest arms sale to Israel, $735 million. That happened right like after right after the assault on Gaza, and I think that that's that's really, really important, and that that is indicative of a much larger shift. I think COVID and the way that the government has dealt with COVID and just the, the disaster that unfolded in the last year in the U.S. and that is unfolding elsewhere in the world right now is also uh, another reason why people are a lot more uh, are, are instinctually siding with Palestinians and choosing to uplift that. And, and maybe this is different, but I, but I think all of this or maybe you're going to ask this in a bit, Joey. But I think all of this is part of the shift that we're seeing in the U.S. elsewhere, but in the U.S. in particular, where often the, the Zionist narrative is strongest and has is so powerful on on a number of levels.
3: No, for sure. I will. Def- I wanted to ask a question about the shift of narratives, and we'll focus on the US since you're, you're both based there. In Europe, it's definitely been much slower, and I think like we're seeing some stuff in the UK, we're seeing some stuff in in France, but like it's it's kind of a mixed bag. And you know, maybe I'll do some episode on that more specifically at some point. I would briefly say though, like on the matter of like the uh, exchanges that, or the, the, the fact that governments are actually learning from one another as well, like you mentioned the example of of like American and Israeli cops basically exchanging information, actually, you know, training one another and, and that sort of thing. But there's also like many other things that are often not really talked about as much. Like I just wrote actually some of them down. that I just, you know, remembered off the spot of like uh, the UAE uses Israeli intelligence software, for example, to spy on its own citizens. Um, Ahmed Mansour was a famous case a couple of years ago and he's still in prison now. Russia uses Israeli drones in Syria, uh, China has, um, the Chinese government has used Israeli police tactics uh, in their quote-unquote fight against terrorism, uh, literally using like the Israelis' lessons of how to repress Palestinians and how to do so the same with the, with the Uyghurs. Just a number of other things that I'm sure I'm forgetting. Other stuff are like more obvious stuff like, you know, Israel and France, you know, buying weapons or Egypt with the, the Israeli government or Turkey with the Israeli government for that matter as well. You know, all of these things. And so part of what I'm trying to do, or like what other people also are trying to do, is just point these out more consciously, especially when these governments are then trying to use Palestine to whitewash what they themselves try to do within their own territories, or even abroad, like in the case of Russia. Because it has led to a lot of these, you know, Shirin, you referenced this, a lot of these bitterness in activist circles that I really think we need to be very conscious of and very careful with, because it ends up being a, how do you say this?
2: holding us
3: back at least. Yeah, definitely holding us back and like uh, comparing sufferings. And that's something that I, I really think is, is should be avoided. And, and we need to be very conscious that people are, will end up doing this if we, we don't, um, you know, we're not very careful with this. At least that's something I focus on. I don't necessarily think everyone mm-hmm. should focus on this. But yeah, I mean, to go back to the shift of narratives, um it is, I think, like it's, it's valuable to kind of uh, dwell on this a bit more. Uh, if that's OK. Like just the fact that so just a bit of context, I wrote my dissertation in 2016, uh, which was on um, the politics of Yiddish and Hebrew within, like, broadly defined, like, Zionist discourse or even anti-Zionist discourse in some cases. Mm-hmm. And at the time, of course, elections were happening in the U.S. And it just so happened that, I mean, pretty much the only major Jewish candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, was also the only one who didn't go to APAC. And I remember this being a massive, massive thing at the time, like just something that everyone was talking about and everything. And of course, like, I'm, you know, lots of critiques towards Bernie as well, but this is something that was definitely significant. And since then, we just saw, you know, from Jewish Voice for Peace to If Not Now to other groups that I'm definitely not remembering right now. And this more conscious rejection of the israeli states attempt to essentially say that it is the state of all jews and how this actually intersected at the same time with the you know ferguson protest first and then with with black lives matter more broadly and how this ended up being like uh i'm hearing a lot of statements by like jewish americans referencing black lives matter in condemning the israeli government's actions and i think that's that's really really powerful so can we dwell on this a bit more like what can what, what can you tell us from your sides of what you've been saying
1: i can start I mean, I think one of the things you alluded to this, Joey, right now is there's a break with Zionism. There's a major break with Zionism that's unfolding in the United States um, and just growing and growing. And I think that's massive because right away what that does is it undercuts the argument that standing in solidarity with Palestinians, that supporting Palestinian rights, demanding an end to occupation, to settler colonialism means you're anti-Semitic. It destroys that argument completely. And more and more groups have adopted anti Zionism. So, Jewish Voice for Peace in 2017 officially adopted it. Other large groups are right now in conversation about coming out publicly against Zionism. But I think that's really important because it also means that when elected officials, when celebrities, when other other, uh, political figures uh, with a lot of following want to speak out in solidarity, they know that they can fall back on the fact that actually it's not all Jewish people that are Zionists. Actually, in fact, Many are saying they're anti-Zionist, that Israel doesn't get to speak on behalf of all Jewish people. So I think that's one of the biggest shifts in, in the U.S., in, in, in the Jewish community. Um, I think the another uh, is the ability to draw these organic connections between Palestine and a number of other social justice struggles in the U.S. that have been growing from immigration to anti-war to Black Lives Matter, um, and the list goes on, uh, climate crisis, for example, climate justice work. Has also made Palestine increasingly in the mainstream and less of a fringe issue because it's tied with all of these. And of course, this has everything to do with decades and decades of Palestine activists insisting on this work, despite facing deportations, despite despite facing you know losing their jobs, et cetera. I think another another shift that we're seeing or a result of this is what's happening in Congress. Right? These are the places where Palestinians are heard least, if at all. And yet, what we saw last Thursday was multiple members of Congress on the floor, meaning everything they say is put into the congressional record, speaking up for Palestine. And not like hollow slogans about Palestinian rights, but actually much further than that, right? Like Rashida Tlaib talking about her family under occupation. Uh, Ayanna Pressley talking about, you know, what are our values if we're funding this? Sure, some of it has the same liberal rhetoric that we're used to, but the fact that it's happening now... And uh, the 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 messaging that's used, I think, is really different. The fact that like we're using words like ethnic cleansing and apartheid, we're not just talking about um, occupation or rights, but but really naming exactly what is happening. And to be honest, I think one of the most powerful speeches from the one in Congress was Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's, because it directly connects what's happening in Palestine to U.S. imperialism. I and mean, I think that's one one of the arguments we have really been trying to push in the mm-hmm. Palestine rights movement. And actually, if if I have time, can I read it? Can I read an excerpt of it? Because yeah, I think absolutely, it's really absolutely. powerful. And again, this is not to say that there's no criticisms that we have of all these people. But it's in this context that the power of these words, I think, is really important. So here's what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said. She said, my family comes from the island of Puerto Rico. And I grew up visiting my family on the island where the United States bombed its own territories. And I would go to sleep as a little girl to the sound of U.S. bombs detonating. Practice is what it was called at the time. Practice. And when I saw those airstrikes that are supported with U.S. funds, she means in Gaza, I could not help but wonder if our communities were practiced for this. This is our business because we are playing a role in it, end quote. I think it's powerful, one, because it connects to U.S. imperialism directly. It's Mm -hmm. saying what the U.S. was doing in Puerto Rico and is still doing this in Puerto Rico was this practice for what's happening in Gaza. And the second is because it responds to all of the arguments that why should we care about what's happening in Palestine, right? Oftentimes that's, that's what we hear. What do we have to do with it? Why don't we care about what's happening in the U S and it's like, no, actually this is our business because we're funding it because we're allowing it to happen with our material support. And the the whole material support argument, I also think is important because what the U S has done for decades is used this idea of material support for terrorism to imprison and to um, uh, um, surveil and to deport so many um, Muslims and Arabs in the United States mm. um, under the guise of material support for terrorism. So, the Holy Land Five are a good example, right? These five people that were raising money for backpacks and school supplies for people in Gaza and who were thrown in jail. And two of them are serving 65 years in jail until now. They are still in prison. Meanwhile, the US gives Israel $3.8 billion a year that we know goes to buying the weapons that are now. And the bombs that are now falling on Palestinians in Gaza um, and killing them, and there's you know there's no talk about how that's support for the settler colonial regime. So I think I think there's definitely shifts. The resolution that was introduced um, and that Bernie Sanders actually just signed on to as well is bringing to the Senate floor today um, calls for uh, halting this latest ship, shipment of weapons or weapons sales. Congress has ten days, ten business days, to vote on this. Um, So I think the next 10 days are really critical in figuring out how do we pressure the Senate to to not let this deal go through, not because our liberation is, you know, bound up or wound up with what the Senate does. No, it's a lot more than that. But if this doesn't go through, that's a that's a major signal to Israel that it actually can't act with impunity, that there are consequences Mm -hmm. that we're at a moment where we can hold Israel accountable. The potential for that right now is huge. And it's just a matter of how do we seize this opportunity and continue to build momentum and not let it die down.
2: Yeah, just I think this goes well into what's the role of the left in the current moment. So I think, you know, last week, Biden called Netanyahu and then said that he's in total support of Israel. And this week, he said, he he called Israel and said, hey, maybe tone it down a little. (laughs) I mean, paraphrasing there. But basically what's going on in Congress, et cetera, is a reflection of our movements on the street. And, and what we need to do to pressure them, I think is, you know, keep the hundreds of thousands. Apparently there were 250,000 people marching in in, Mich- in Detroit uh, a few days ago. So our, our job is, is to keep the pressure going in the streets. I, I actually have uh, several things to say about um, the role of the left right now. I think, you know the changing conversation on Palestine might actually be able to push much larger a se- segment of of the population, at least in the U.S., to to the left in in terms of the relationship with Biden, because you know Biden was seen as this alternative to Trump, almost a, our saving grace in one in in a certain sense. But now we've seen you know he's he's been in Michigan and there were about a thousand people protesting against him in, in Michigan because of because of his inability to do anything because of him <laughs> giving an arms sale of uh, or trying to give an arms sale of 3 735 million dollars worth to Israel while they're bombing Gaza. So this is a chance to actually push back against him which I think is is huge and necessary. In terms of what you were saying earlier about the interconnection whether it's the police, you know, there's also G4S, HP, these corporations that profit off of the prison system in in the U.S., in Israel, et cetera, or the shared technology between the U.S.-Mexico border. But all of that po- uh, points uh, what, what Samaya was talking about, you know, the, the connection between Israel and imperialism and the role of Israel globally is like what my chapter in the book was about. Uh, Israel is the watchdog for U.S. imperialism. And it has been that way since its inception, pretty much, you know, when the US couldn't openly sell weapons to reactionary regimes in latin america or globally really they they had israel do that. so i think that's also one of our the big roles for for socialists right now is is making that connection to imperialism. yeah, and and the you know the call for bds is already being put forward, but we have to make the the demand that not just I mean, Bernie has said things like reassess U.S. aid to Israel or but we need to demand a a total end to it. And let's see.
3: Uh, You mean like not not just conditioned aid, but like completely just cut it off.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Not conditioned. That's the the term. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But I also think we have to put forward as socialists like that. We need mass movements here to end this U.S.-Israel relationship. You know, AOC, uh, what she's doing, it is. Unprecedented. It is a f- the first time this is happening, but that might start. You know, the the sale of seven hundred and thirty five million dollars sale of, of weapons. But that's not going. That's not enough to end the U.S. Israel relationship, which is steeped in imperialism, as Samaya said. And so, a change to that requires, you know, a change to the U.S. also as an imperial superpower, which would need a mass uprising here, if not an end to the Democratic Party and the the two party system as a whole. And I think you know, that might sound far-fetched, but we see it's it's not entirely impossible there. You know, we had an, a mass uprising across the US last summer and now we're having, if, if it continues, this is a movement that's uh, taking shape right now. Yeah, in, in addition to that, I, I think we also have to push in terms of what we're pushing for on the left or or as Palestine solidarity activists, we have to push for a revival of of BDS in many ways and a revival of our movements. I I think they really actually took a hit during the Trump presidency. For example, a lot of Students for Justice in Palestine chapters sort of went underground because of the level of repression and there were, you know, anti-BDS laws uh, being put forward, etc. But, you know, it's really possible to Put forward BDS right now in the current moment, while the conversation is changing. So, for example, in Boston, we have uh, a chapter. We, I mean, it's it's one of its kind. It's BDS Boston, and for three years, uh, the group fought for Cambridge City Council to put forward a resolution to cut ties with Hewlett Packard because they provide technology for the Israeli military, and and that came under horrific backlash in around 2018 or 19. But in the past week, DSA councilperson actually brought the resolution back. So it's back on the table because of Israel's latest bombardment of Gaza and because of the, the conversation changing right now and the attention on Israel's crimes right now. So we have to see what will happen with this particular resolution. But I think it shows that, you know, there's an opening to actual for actual on the ground efforts to put BDS into into practice. Uh, but you might be surprised to know that BDS Boston is the is one of the only BDS campaigns or chapters in the entire US. So there's massive support for it, uh, but conversation alone basically is what I'm trying to say. Conversation alone is not enough. The BDS movement in the US is actually much weaker than in Europe or other parts of the world in terms of actual divestment and cutting ties. I I could also I could say more as socialists, you know, as socialists, we also have to make, you know, the argument we make in in the book that Samaya co-edited and I contributed to is the understanding of Palestinian liberation as tied to to the regional, regional liberation, tied to an understanding of imperialism as, you know, not just U.S. imperialism, but the way that the, the current stage of imperialism globally, I guess you would say. I don't know. I don't know if you want to talk more about the the left. It's 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 interesting being at protests right now because you know being in the DSA, where I don't know if this is off topic at all.
3: <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I don't think so.
2: Okay. Um. But for example, in Boston, we've we're managing to bring more and more DSA folks out to to these protests. We and DSA had... is the
3: Democratic Socialist of America. For those who don't know.
2: Yes. 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 And. It's it's sort of an effort to reorient DSA because DSA can often be focused on the electoral aspect or who who are we going to get into office uh, that's a socialist. But now we're saying, you know, we need people on the street to show that we support Palestine and to be part of this movement. So that's an argument we're making. And at the same time, you see other socialist groups like... uh, (laughs) Uh, I was very frustrating, frustrated seeing groups like Socialist Alternative who have the analysis that we push back against in the book, a chapter about the Israeli working class. But they still think, you know, Israel's working class is, is a potential potentially progressive force, which I think completely overlooks what's happening on the ground. And because of this, they're against BDS. So there's a lot of work. I mean, we see overall the left being so unsupported in support of Palestine, but there's actually a lot of work to be done still, of course. And then there are other groups like PSL, which, you know, sees U.S. imperialism as the major imperialist force and is against the Syrian revolution, etc. And that's where, again, we need socialists who are saying, actually, we need an end to the regimes across the Middle East that are colluding with Israel in one way or another, or preventing their people from rising up in solidarity with Palestine. And that needs to be part of the analysis.
1: Yeah, I'll pick up where Shireen left off. I mean, I think that our, we need to definitely connect Palestine to all of these other um, anti-imperialist struggles in the region and beyond. And I think Palestinians on the ground have actually been doing that online and and um, when speaking to the media, you know, connecting Palestine to Syria, to Western Sahara, to Yemen, to Afghanistan, um, which is really key and really important because it also forces all of those not in Palestine to reckon with the fact that this is what Palestinians are saying. They are making those connections. They're saying it's not just us. And they're de-exceptionalizing what's happening. There's nothing new about what Israel is doing. It's something that's been done again and again and again. I think another thing is that Jihad Abu Salim, uh, who's Palestinian from Gaza, uh, currently based in the U.S., also pointed out to me, we were talking the other day, how during the protests last week, there were Syrian revolution flags flying. You know, people are making the connection between Palestine and Syria. So that's this is not this is not new. This is not something being imposed. This is something organic that, that that people are calling for. I think that before talking about what we need to do, I want to preface it by saying that in the U.S., the attacks on the Palestine movement, on Palestine solidarity are very vicious, more so than in other places. They not only exist on the ground, so like in campuses and um, within organizations and communities, Um, but they actually exist on the the federal level. So there are over 200 laws right now attempting to criminalize Palestine advocacy. 23% of them have Mm -hmm. passed. And there's new laws that are expected to go into, that to be introduced this year that would actually, in some states, would have any sort of criticism of Israel and Zionism be considered not just um, hate speech, but potentially a hate crime. And that's a federal offense. And this is just a simple statement like Israel is an apartheid state could be considered a hate crime and there's there's no reason to think that these are just going to disappear because the movement is growing because what we're seeing is that sure the movement is growing there's more people uh, more and more celebrities and elected officials are um, are speaking out publicly but U.S. policy remains the same it hasn't wavered yet whether or not this this uh, resolution to stop this arms sales goes through that might be one of the first times that we're actually able to uh, influence policy in that way and of course there's social media censorship so I'm sure everyone's heard about this already, but in the last three weeks alone, this has been happening for years, but in the last three weeks, the amount of censorship on Facebook and on Instagram has has really has felt unprecedented. I don't have the data to back up to say whether or not it's unprecedented, but it certainly has felt unprecedented, where Palestinians on the ground in Sheikh Jarrah um, or in Haifa or in Gaza could not do Instagram live streams, could not post videos, had their accounts taken down. You know, they were, um, what is it called? Shadow, shadow banned, which basically just means it's hard to, you to can't access them. their yeah. stories. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And a lot of these were just people, just videos showing the police brutality, showing exactly what was happening. So social media censorship is, is, a, is a really big part of uh, one of the ways to sort of clamp down on the the growing Palestine movement. Um, And just in general, growing solidarity, especially as we've seen so many, so many celebrities, people that have never spoken out, come out in support of Palestine. And not, again, not in like a hollow, we support Palestinian rights, but actually using words like ethnic cleansing, using words like apartheid. And of course, you know, three weeks ago, was it just three weeks ago? I think it was just three weeks ago that Human Rights Watch released their 213 page report, formally accusing Israel or charging Israel with apartheid and persecution. And more than that, also talking about the corruption in the PLO. And I think most importantly actually calling for sanctions, recommending to the United Nations that sanctions should be applied on Israel. And I think this is huge because not because it's new, we've been saying it for decades. I mean every Palestinian you ask will say hey we've been saying this for over 73 years but because it 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 gives us more it gives us more to fall back on, right? More evidence. The the more we say this, the more people are saying this from different directions. Uh, the more likely we're going to be able to, to hold Israel accountable. To so the left, the left in the U.S., yes. I think that there's so much opportunity and potential right now. You know, there's there's an actual left in the United States right now, which there, there hadn't been for many decades. It's still small, but it exists and it's growing. And I think Democratic Socialists of America is a big part of that. It's around 90,000 right now and, and still growing. And The majority of those members joined in the last two to three years. And I think what that means is you know, we need to organize in our unions to divest from Israel, from Israeli bonds. Many of the largest unions in the U.S. are still invested in Israeli bonds. I think we need to call for sanctions. I think the U.S., we need to pressure the U.S. to call for sanctions on Israel. And I don't think, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have honestly thought this to be like a very lofty dream that would happen decades down the line. But I think right now it seems very possible, very real, both because of the movements on the ground that are unified, and that are calling for this, and because of uh, the, the very rapid growth of the, the Palestine Solidarity Movement globally, but particularly in the U.S. I think in the U.S., it's actually different from all the other countries because of the, the importance of the U.S.-Israel relationship, right? Like the U.S. basically paid for the Iron Dome, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, the, it's Israel's single largest arms supplier, and it's constantly diverting any attempt to hold Israel accountable in the U.N. or any other body. So I think in the U.S., we have a very particular role to play. So sanctions. Uh, I think another thing is uh, BDS, the the B and the D part, the boycott and divestments on campuses, in workplaces, etc. is is really really key. And I think all of this plays into you know how we influence policy directly, uh, because at the end of the day, it does make a difference when there's someone like AOC and Rashida Tlaib or Alhan Omar in Congress. Like it makes a difference when you have those people saying what we want them to say. Um, and they don't say it overnight. They say it after, you know, a lot of conversations and pressure and people organizing on the ground. But it makes a very big difference. Um, and, and, you know, the, the photo that came out, was it Friday or Saturday, of Rashid Playa confronting Joe Biden on the tarmac in Michigan. I mean, this is a U.S. member of Congress confronting the president on the tarmac, saying, stop, Supplying the arms that are killing my family. These are historic, I think, on so many levels, um, and I think it's important to point that out and and think about how do we how do we grow that and sort of make the most out of that. And then I think the the other thing that that I'll say is, in the U.S. in particular, is really growing the the anti-Zionist movement and thinking about how we uh, use that terminology to build for what Palestinians are calling for. It's not just apartheid. It's ethnic cleansing. It's not just apartheid of settler colonialism, and calling for full decolonization, not just part, and, and really cutting back against the fragmentation, the abstract and geographic fragmentation that Israel is using to, to control Palestinians and, and entrench its project. You know, I think there's a lot of potential for the left, but I think it's a, it's a question of how quickly can we organize to use this moment, because we're not going to have it for very much longer. We all know that it's usually when a ceasefire is called... Things die down and go back to the status quo, which for Palestinians is just the everyday brutality of occupation. And so it's a question of how do we use this right now to to really push for calls for sanction for BDS.
3: Yeah, I will just briefly say so a number of things. A you mentioned also the climate movement. I forgot to mention it before. Uh, I was happily surprised to see that the Fridays for Future. Uh, coalition has basically uh, put out a statement uh, essentially saying that they support Palestine against ethnic cleansing and all of that, which I was really happy to see. And they actually problematizes themselves, like even asking the question in advance, like why is the climate group talking about Palestine? They attempted to to answer it. And I think that that's a very important conversation to have, especially in the context of Israel's whole, you know, myth of greening the desert and all of that. I think that's a really important thing. I'll definitely have an episode specifically on that. On the apartheid question, Human Rights Watch's report is, of course, very important. It followed, like, you know, Beth said that a few years ago, and other groups uh, across the world have said this before. And, of course, Palestinian groups have been saying it for a longer time. But Human Rights Watch saying it is, has, of course, it's, its impact. Last Sunday, I spoke with a friend of mine who is uh, Maya on this podcast, uh, who is uh, South African, and she's also Jewish. And she managed to, I think, elaborate in very specific ways how the comparison to apartheid, uh, like basically its limitations. So like, yes, it is absolutely apartheid. But as you also said, Sumaya, like it is also more than that. No comparison is ever perfect, of course. It is useful in as much as given that there is the crime of apartheid and persecution, as, as Human Rights said, which is a very specific legal crime. Uh, then that is you know something that can be um, campaigned on essentially which is very important but there's also the the next steps to to be taken which I think Palestinians are, of course very well tuned to and you know Somaya you mentioned it right now so I just wanted to to add that as well um so I mean to kind of we're winding down a bit but I would like just maybe f- a few more thoughts on your sides uh, in terms of, if if there's anything I may have missed to tackle, or if there's anything you wanted to expand upon a bit more before we sort of wrap up to get into the, you know, the book section of the of the episode. Um,
1: sure. So I every time I'm having one of these conversations, after I speak, I'm like, wow, there's a million things that I forgot to say. And I think it's because one, the the richness of what Palestinians have Palestinians resist, and like the myriad of ways that that they do, and also the brutality of what Israel's is doing and the myriad of ways they creatively come up with methods of oppressing Palestinians. But I wanted to actually share, you know, um yesterday, a seventeen year old Palestinian was shot and killed. Um, he was actually sh- he was shot and killed on the day of the strike on on Tuesday. He was shot on the day of the strike on Tuesday, and, and he succumbed to his wounds yesterday. He's 17 years old. His name is Mohammed Mahmoud Kiwan. And Palestinians in 48 organized uh, a, a very large rally and demonstration in March for his funeral, uh, which was today. And there were thousands of pe- people at his funeral, and they all chanted um, in unison. And I actually want to read the chant. It's in Arabic, so I'll, I'll translate it. We were not born to live in degradation. We were born to live in freedom. And I think that that is really emblematic of everything that Palestinians, from the river to the sea, from Gaza to the West Bank, Jerusalem, in 48, and in the diaspora, um, that is that is the root of our struggle, is that we want to live free. We just want to live, right? We, we just don't want to live every day just trying to survive to the next, but actually want to live in freedom. Um, and I think that's the call that people all over the world right now are are demanding uh, as, as they suffer from COVID, as they suffer, suffer from austerity. And, and from settler colonialism in, in a number of different places. So I wanted to share that. And I also want to share that, you know, this goes back to the shift. So so I apologize that I'm saying it now. But just a decade ago, or a little over a decade ago, you couldn't really say Palestine or Palestinians on uh, mainstream news. It would be edited out or it would have to come with some sort of qualification. Uh, and now we have Palestinians uh, saying what they want to say in their own words in the mainstream. And I think that that, that is really really indicative of the shift that is happening. I also want to say that as exciting as it is as inspiring, you know, all of this is, at the same time, we're, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Like there's, there's so much that needs to be done. It's not going to be as simple as like in a year, there's a chance Palestine will be free. I think that where we are in a new chapter, as the strike manifesto says, this is a new chapter that we're writing, and it's an important one. Mm -hmm. But it also really necessitates that everyone understand the urgency of this moment, um, the urgency of this potential, not just for Palestinian freedom, but actually for liberation across the region, um, in the Middle East and North Africa, and here in the United States. I mean, what it would mean to, to fully cut ties with Israel and the U.S., to uncover all of these arms deals, these surveillance deals and technology deals that has huge ramifications on a number of struggles in the United States as well. And the US is, you know, remains the the most powerful imperial country in the world. So anything that happens here will have ripple effect around the world.
3: If I share, just to add to what you just said, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, Netanyahu went to to Congress and got more standing ovations than than (laughs) even Obama did during his own, you know, so... It it is pretty significant that I'm seeing people like Noura, like Mariam, like a number of other people on 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 these media outlets, and I think Noura herself mentioned that she would actually be allowed to talk, and they would be like sympathetic, and they the, it says a lot. I think that you know I think that we just our expectations have gotten so low essentially that even this is 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 amazing, and I mean, not that it isn't uh, significant in itself, but there is a bit of a bittersweet aspect aspect to it as well. Um, but yeah, just wanted to add that.
1: So news was actually, apparently, a ceasefire has been agreed to for tomorrow morning, between Hamas and Israel. A lot of that has to do with a number of things. But I think it's important to say that the, the this resolution that was introduced by these members of Congress and Bernie, I think, have the effect of applying pressure on Israel. Because if something like this passes and gains traction, it sets a precedent for other arms deals not to go through other actions at, you know, I'm sure you all heard about the the ship in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um and then the one in the Bay Area where workers were trying to organize not to unload or load ships with with arms going straight to Israel. So I you know, I the, the hope is that despite this ceasefire, which of course is good, that momentum doesn't die down and that the urgency of, of what is happening in Palestine continues and that We don't that people don't only care when Gaza is being carpet bombed, but they also care when Gaza is under siege, when Palestinians are forced out of their homes, when the ethnic cleansing project continues, and it's in all the other ways.
3: And not to mention that, like, given that it's tomorrow morning, it might actually mean that tonight might might also be very terrifying. So people should really not forget that as well.
2: Yeah. Thanks. uh, Thanks for all that, Samaya. Um, I really agreed with what you said about about to reach uh, liberation we still have so much work to do I think what we're seeing right now just to reiterate you know the colonizer is getting more and more violent you know it's the most brutal bombardment of Gaza more brutal than 2009 2012 2014 you know it's hard to imagine the brutality keeps getting uh, more intense and we can expect unfortunate like it's horrific but we can expect more of that so on the one hand, the colonizer is getting more violent. And on the other hand, our side is just starting to cohere, but with a higher expectation for what liberation is going to be. But on the other hand, you know, we saw, as I think you mentioned, Samaya, a, a youth-led effort in Sheikh Jarrah in, uh, and across cities in in inside 48 or Israel. Uh, it has been largely youth-led, and that's allowed, you know, reject rejecting the concessions that the political parties have made, whether in the first intifada, as I mentioned, or in, in many other instances, and saying, you know, our, our vision of liberation is so much bigger than that. But still, there's so much work to be done just to cohere. And this is not just in Palestine, it's also here, it's also across the Middle East. Like, what is our side going to look like? How are we going to build towards power? You know, we're just starting to see a left in the US and the DSA, and we're just starting to figure it out. Yes, we have. The DSA has been invaluable, of course. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Samaya. But we're still figuring at figuring out, you know, what's our best route to to actual changes on the ground and to actual power. Which again, I would say, is keep building our movement, make it sustained, as you said, Samaya. And our job as socialists, again, is just keep these connections going. I guess I wanted to mention, you know, there there weren't protests inside regime Syria, but there were protests in Idlib, which is. Uh, what they call rebel-held, or, or non-regime Syria, there were mass protests and solidarity. So paying attention to the, the regional aspect, which again, is in a period of despair. <laughs> we can't romanticize that. And, and there needs to be, yeah, we need to be in a much stronger position in the US, in Palestine, and globally, to actual actually get to, to that uh, liberation that we want to see. I wrote down three books, but this isn't one of them, but I just read or reread Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And I was reminded of that. Uh, it's talks and interviews with Angela Davis about mm-hmm. Palestine and black liberation. And just showing how yeah. deeply tied together they are.
3: So just before we before we get into the book section, just very quickly, I'll say that in Beirut as well, there were protests yesterday for Palestine. And if I'm not mistaken, today as well, probably as we're recording or a bit earlier. Uh, and they, they meet like extreme pressure. Uh, the numbers are definitely smaller than they would otherwise. Of course, you mentioned Smail a few days ago, there were the, the the attempts to basically get to the border, which was stopped because there's the, it's a UN zone, especially in the army stops people, stops non-Lebanese specifically, I have to say, Lebanese people are technically allowed to pass. Uh, but anyway, so just to emphasize that even in the context of Lebanon, where like the state of Lebanon is technically in a state of war with Israel, and one would think I mean, people who don't know the context would assume that maybe, you know, the population is more sympathetic or um, not population, that the the political class is more sympathetic or not. But they're actually not. And they're just using it for their own purposes. I'm not going to get into the Hezbollah stuff for now. I rant about them elsewhere. But it's 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 something that Palestinians in Lebanon definitely have to deal with significantly more. Um, And yeah, I just wanted to emphasize that as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think one thing that's that I've really noticed, this is about this is back to the shift. Um, I'm new to Twitter. I joined Twitter in December, and, and I suddenly feel like it's a whole world that um, I've been missing out on for good or for bad. I don't know. But um, I think what's increasingly become clear, at least in the U.S., with the last month in particular, is there's no longer a middle ground. You either support Palestinians and their demands for freedom or you justify what Israel is doing. There's no yes to this and yes to this and but or it's it's really those two because there's the the excuse of ignorance really falls flat. I mean, Palestine has been pushed to the mainstream in the last few weeks in the United States. Um, You've heard about it one way or another, even if you don't know any of the details, you've heard about it. And so your choice to be silent is either a choice to be silent because you agree with what Israel is doing and you just don't care. You don't care about Palestinians dying in the hundreds um, or it's out of fear. And if it's the latter, I think hopefully, that, that will you'll overcome that slowly because of how fast the movement is growing and how robust it is and how unapologetic it is in its demands. But I think that's where we are in the U.S. It it really is you're with the oppressor, or you're with the oppressed. There's, mm-hmm. there's no middle ground to yeah. navigate.
2: Right. Yeah. I think, you know, Muhammad al-Kurd, he's been one of the leaders in, in Sheikh Shara. He said very bluntly, you're if you are either an unapologetic racist or or you're uh, with Palestinians, um and I think that's a lesson that's something that I mean, that's the reason for me, Palestine is at the center of of my politics, and that's like that's why it's almost a guide to other struggles that you need to see as so connected. You're either with the oppressed or with the oppressor. it's It's that simple. It's that simple when it comes to Syria too. That's the framework that we need to to use. Mhm.
3: No, definitely. And, you know, thanks for that. I think this is a really good note to kind of end-ish on. But let, let's get to the book section. I kind of, I always love the section. So what are three books that you two would recommend and and why?
2: Okay. Um, obviously, I said freedom is a constant struggle, but I wrote down three others. So Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, which describes how neoliberalism came into place through massive violence worldwide, partly led by the U.S. Islamophobia and the Politics of the Empire by Deepa Kumar, uh, I think it explains, you know, so much of how things came to be today uh, from a political, historical and sort of political economy perspective, including the Arab states relationships with, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, et cetera, and how these states and the U.S. also saw Islamists as like less of a threat than the progressive left. Uh, so they focused on crushing the left, but allowed Islamists to grow, et cetera, et cetera. So it breaks through essentialism around Islam and the idea of the Muslim world. And it shows that phenomena today are, you know, a product of imperialism and political choices. And then finally, A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution by Samar Yazbek, um, which is a little bit, it's a little bit hard to find these days. It's her earlier book on the, her experiences in the revolution. So it, I love that book because it gives a real feel for you know how things were at the start, at the very start of the Syrian revolution, including how Palestinians were smeared by the Assad regime, you know how the regime from the beginning tried to ramp up sectarianism to crush the uprising, and uh, the efforts of students and young activists to carry forward despite everything.
1: So uh, one of mine was one that Shadi enlisted, so I'm gonna. I have to come up with another one. It was uh Islamophobia and the Politics of the Empire. It's a really, really fabulous book. And I, I think anyone, anyone living in the United States in particular, I think should read this. This should be in one of the top five books you read in the next seven months. So my first two are actually novels. So the first is called I'm a Big Fan of Historical Novels. The first is Arundhati Roy's uh, Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really, really fabulous, really rich book. And like truly a historical novel, you will learn just as much as a nonfiction book. Very good book. And then the second is very into spy novels. And um, John Le Carré is someone who I discovered a few months ago uh, and started reading. And and actually his books kept me company. I had COVID in January and his books kept me company for two weeks. But um, one of my favorite books of his is called Smiley's People really highly recommend it if you want to just be taken to a different era fabulous writing um also very historical uh very good book and then i think instead of a third book joey if this is okay since mine is also samuel plus empire i'm going to recommend a movie that is really probably one of my top two favorite movies it's called *Kafar Mm khasim i don't think it's available anywhere right now unfortunately unless you find a bootleg copy because it's being restored but it was made in the 1970s and it's about the Kafar Qasim massacre in 1956. And um, the reason it's so powerful is because it starts on the eve of Nasser announcing the, the nationalization of the Suez Canal. And uh, it's about Kafar Qasim and it shows the different political uh, groupings in Kafar Qasim, the like sort of socioeconomic breakdown of the people in Kafar Qasim. So you had the Nasserists, you had the communists. You had the workers that, that worked for this Israeli settlement um, and then the Palestinian middleman and the corrupt mayor. It's a really, really great movie and, and uh, highly recommend it if you haven't seen it yet.
3: My PhD is on Lebanese cinema. <laughs> it's, on Bukhan, it's by Bohan Alaouye, um, from the, yeah, the 70s. I have it. If everyone's listening, wants to listen to it, I'll find a way to send you copy. I don't know if it's legal, but uh, maybe maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but it's fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so Maya, you also reminded me, I wanted to bring up the movie, uh, The Feeling of Being Watched. You know, do you know that movie? It talks about, it. it, it talks about how basically Islamophobic surveillance in the U.S., specifically talking about a, a community in Chicago, and how certain figures in the community were brought to Brought charges against them basically because of them uh, raising money for Palestine. But in the end, all they could get against them was you know leaving something out of their taxes. <laughs> but but uh, it's it's uh, it's using one example of a community in Chicago to say how uh, Islamophobic surveillance works in the across the U.S. Really, really to to put people under the label of terrorism for giving money to Palestine and then going after them in all different (laughs) basically it's the idea the feeling of being watched it's like the fbi is constantly watching you
3: yeah it's from it's 2018 i just found it i will link everything we're talking about now in the show notes on the the blog post anyway but yeah i mean guys thanks a lot for this this has been really informative i will actually try my best to to publish it soon after Uh, like now basically soon in a few hours maybe but yeah thanks a lot for your time thank you you so
2: much